Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Have you ever been told by someone to come here? Maybe they holler at you through the house trying to find you. Maybe they, there's a spider that needs killing or, or some other thing that needs you to be there. And they holler and shout for you to come. And uh, maybe, maybe you uh, um, have, as a child, you know, hear your mom or dad holler, come here, and you're thinking, is this a good request or a bad request? Is this something that's joyful or, or dreadful? Um, I have a powerful memory of, of being told to come somewhere. And uh, it was at the end of July 2019, I learned that my father had been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. I was living here in Colorado. He was in Florida. As you can imagine, that was an unexpected and devastating diagnosis. And my dad's disease was uh, attacking and destroying his body with a vengeance, and it had spread throughout his body, and there really was nothing that could be done. And uh, one month later, uh, in August of 2019, he was set up with at-home hospice support and care. And I remember my dad wanting me to visit. He said, come, come visit. And so I remember flying to Florida and eventually arriving at my mom and dad's home there in Port Charlotte, Florida, and remember walking into his house down this little hallway by the garage and into the family room and making my way into that room, seeing things set up for hospice and seeing my dad. And in my mind's eye, I can still see the relief and the the love cascade over him when he saw me walk walk into the room. I remember his hug, his tight embrace, and uh, the appreciation feeling and the longing for him for us to spend time together. Come. But here's the problem. My dad died a month later, at the end of September. And that means I can no longer hear my dad or respond to his invitation to come. And that's the problem, right? We live in a world like that, in a world where the ravages of sin destroy and threaten everything precious to us. Money doesn't last. Beauty doesn't last. Fitness doesn't last. Health doesn't last. Success doesn't last. Finances, fame, power, the approval of others, it just doesn't last. Everything in this world that we might try to find joy and satisfaction and ultimately, eventually, doesn't last. We don't last. We will one day be buried and gone. So what are we to do? Well, the Scriptures tell us we need someone to rescue us from this world of death. The Scriptures teach us that we need someone who can give us soul satisfaction that can't be touched by the ravages of death. We need someone who can give us a rescue and satisfy this endless thirst in our soul that we're all looking for. In other words, the scriptures teach that we need God. And so in this sermon, what I'd like to do is just take us on a kind of a guided meditation to prepare us to observe the Lord's Supper together. You see that prepared here in front of, in front of me. And I want to focus our attention on Jesus, but specifically in this aspect, on his invitation to come to him, to find in him our soul's satisfaction. And I want us to observe the Lord's Supper together with with the echo of Jesus' invitation to come to him, lingering in our ears, warming our hearts, 
and filling our soul with satisfaction and anticipation of the light. So that's our aim this morning. And we're going to do that by looking in John 7 primarily. We're going to be looking at verse 37 and the first part of verse 38 um, to do that. And so in context, in John, 30, uh, John 7, if you find there in your Bible, uh, verse 37, it says that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out and then he gives us invitation. Well, what is this feast that's recorded there in John? Um, the feast that he's mentioning, you find in verse 2 of chapter 7, uh, when uh, the Apostle John says, now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. Uh, that's what was going on. Now, this probably is unfamiliar to many of us, we don't live and operate in our calendar through Israelite feasts and celebrations. But the Feast of Booths was an Israelite festival that was established, you can read about it in Leviticus 23 or in Deuteronomy 16. And it was commanded by God for Israel to observe this festival, and it went on about seven days, to remind them of the mighty works that he did in saving them from Egyptian bondage and to rem- for them to remember and celebrate God's provision to them through their wilderness wanderings. And part of this was called the Festival of Booze or Tabernacles because they would make temporary shelters to remind themselves that they once were wandering around. They did not have permanent homes, a, permanent, a city that was, was uh, their city and place to live permanently. They, they wandered as nomads. And God said, you're going to celebrate my God's miraculous provision of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. And so here in John 7, you have the last day of that festival being observed. And part of that festival included some water with some pitchers and a ceremony and then pouring that out. And what happens, we're told, is that Jesus stands up on this last day and he shouts something for everyone to hear. What does he shout? Well, that's what we find in verse 37. You see this? John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Here's what he cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what can we learn from this passage this morning? Three simple ideas for us to meditate on as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper together this morning. The first truth is this. Your soul is thirsty. Your soul is thirsty. Now, we know from the context that Jesus here, when he cries out, to them to come to him and to drink. If anyone thirsts, he's not talking about a physical thirst. And we know that because he wasn't, for instance, uh, to make it more modern day, although I'm not sure if they're even in business, but it, you remember the advertisements for the Culligan man? You know, somebody would shout out, hey, Culligan man, and then you show up with a truck and fill your, your house up with bottled water, and if you don't remember that, well, it, it was a thing, okay? It wasn't like Jesus was saying, hey, I can hook you up with some great bottled water if you're thirsty. That wasn't it. We, we understand that from the context, because in John chapter 6, Jesus was using words of hunger and thirst to, to, to describe spiritual realities that, were, that are taking place in our hearts as people. And he's continuing that analogy here in John 7. And so what Jesus is saying is that in every person there is a soul thirst. Every person. The soul, that inner person, that immaterial part of you that is you, has something that is analogous to physical thirst, an appetite, a hunger in John 6, in John 7, a thirst. There's a craving. Well, ask yourself, what do you want most? What do you crave for? What do you crave for in life? Have you ever gone without water for a while? 
Maybe you've been really thirsty after a hike in the mountains or um, you felt that keen edge of thirst. I, I don't think I can honestly say that I've ever been in danger of dying from thirst. But I remember as a kid thinking that was true, right? Thinking that I was going to die from thirst. One, in, one story I, I just remember repeatedly as a kid in recess, and we would be outside playing in recess. That's why I went to school, for recess. And the teacher had the audacity to call us back into the, you know, the school building to resume school. And I remember, you know, on a hot Wisconsin day, coming in with my classmates, we were parched. I thought I was going to die from thirst. And we'd get in a line, and there was a water fountain. And one by one, our classmates would go to that water fountain. And when it was your turn, you would drink from that water fountain like you had just trekked across the Sahara Desert with no water, right? You know, that long drink, and then you come up and gasp for air, and then back down into the water fountain to drink. And I remember being so perturbed at how long everyone else drank. And then when it was my turn right? Thirst. You've had that? Thirsty? Well, Jesus is saying that when you go without water, just like your body gets thirsty, when you go without God, your soul gets thirsty. That's what he's saying here. You have a soul thirst for God. Just like your body was made to live on water, the scriptures teach that your soul was made to live on God. And as an image bearer of God, we understand the scriptures teach that because we are image bearers of God, we are more than just physical bodies. We're not just buried in the ground and turned into dust and we're done. But as an image bearer of God who has a soul, a spirit, we have been made to relate with and enjoy God. That was his initial plan. We thirst for him. And so Jesus knows this. And he calls out an invitation to all of us to come to him and drink, to have our soul thirst satisfied in him. So, our souls are thirsty, which, by the way, that's why this world is never enough. That's why money is never enough. That's why success is never enough. That's why accomplishment is never enough. That's why the applause and the praise of of people is never enough. It always falls short. You get to that next destination, the next milestone, and it's not enough. Because you've been made for something greater, something better, something bigger. You have been made with a thirst for God. So where are we going to find water for our souls? Where do we find this water? Well, I've already told you, but God. But So I guess this is the second idea, that only Jesus can quench your soul thirst. Only Jesus. Only he can quench your soul thirst. You've been made to drink up the greatness of God, his wisdom, His power, His goodness, His justice, His righteousness, His holiness, His love. On and on we could go in describing God. You've been made to drink Him up. Like, well, what does that look like? Well, and by the way, there's a lot at stake here because if you don't, you will die. You will. So, uh, think about it this way. Sometimes people say they experience God by going out in nature, right? Um, That's pretty popular these days, right? They kind of have these moments with the divine, however they might define that, by walking on a nature trail and seeing trees and forests and mountains and valleys and rivers and having that moment. And certainly you can have an experience with, quote-unquote, God in that way, yes, in a way through nature, but it's not enough. It's not. And the reason is, is because you can't know a tree personally. Maybe I should say it this way. (laughs) Maybe you can. Um, I, well, I just have a memory of the city cutting down one of the trees in our neighborhood in Florida. My kids were weeping when that tree got cut down. They knew that tree, right? But here's the problem. That tree doesn't know you. 
right? That landscape doesn't know you. There's not that personal relationship, right? You can't share your worries and anxieties and heartbreaks and sorrows and excitements and delights and all of that with, with a tree and, and know that you've been heard, that you're known, or fill in the blank, right? So the feeling of transcendence that we get in nature is just an appetizer. It makes us hungry and thirsty for something more. It makes us hungry and thirsty for the one that's behind all of that, the one who created all of that, the one who is the source of all of that. He even in nature, God is saying in Psalm 19, come, know me, is what he's saying there. And Jesus is the best of that invitation, saying, come, know me, and drink. Let, let me quench your soul thirst. Jesus is the only one who can quench your soul thirst. Only Jesus can bring you to God, and your soul is thirsty for God. Even if you don't call yourself a Christian today, even if you, you, you're saying, I'm just here because so-and-so brought me, I didn't want to be rude, and here I showed up. Even if you're not a Christian, if you're honest with yourself, you are thirsty for something transcendent, for someone transcendent, God. Now, notice in verse 37 that Jesus does not say that he has what you need to quench your thirst. He doesn't say that. See verse 37, on that last day he stood up, cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What Jesus is saying is that he is what you need. He is your thirst quencher. He doesn't just have it. He can hook you up with it. He is it. Come to me and drink, he says. And so let me just try to help us understand the flow of this here in, in the Gospel of John to get the force of what the Apostle is giving us as he's writing this in John 6 and John 7 as he continues. So in John 6, Jesus performs a miracle. He feeds thousands of people miraculously. The feeding of the 5,000, right? In John 6, the crowd mentioned that Moses and insinuates that Moses fed people every day, not just once. And so they asked Jesus, so what sign do you give, right? He does this miracle. They're amazed. He's making these claims about divinity, that he is God. And so in John 6, verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do? Well, I mean, he just said, right? So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? And here's what they say. They're kind of saying, you know, impress us. We're not easily impressed, they said, because here they go. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They ate heavenly bread. So Jesus, what are you going to do to prove that you are who you say you are to us? And Jesus said to them in verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. That was an act of God. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. They said this was heavenly bread, right, manna? God is giving you something better than the wafers on the ground. Why? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And everyone in that crowd, including us, reading now here, secondhand, thousands of years later, what is it? We share in that same condition. Our, we have a hunger and a thirst in our souls for God, and only Jesus is the one that can quench that. Jesus is talking about something more than physical hunger and thirst here. We understand that in John 6. Here in John 7 as well. He's talking about that soul hunger and thirst, and he is teaching that he is the only one who can satisfy that hunger and thirst. Now, let me convince you one more time. Turn back to John 4. 
one more, a couple more chapters earlier. Right? Jesus has been teaching the same idea the whole time. Jesus is traveling. He finds himself in Samaria and he's sitting near a well and he has a conversation with a woman. It's commonly called the conversation with the woman at the well. He's talking to her about himself and then he offers her living water, endless water, your thirst always quenched. And he tells her in John 4, verse 14, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Now that is what every triathlete would love to purchase and buy. Every endurance athlete would love to have a bottle of that. Jesus is offering this. He says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's not getting it yet. But Jesus is so good. He's full of grace and truth. And here's the truth that he's going to give. What does Jesus say next? He offers her living water by pointing out her own soul thirst, her hunger and cravings. And he points out to her the utter impossibility an insufficiency of her own efforts to satisfy that soul thirst, that soul hunger. How does he do it? Well, look at verse 16 of John 4. Right? She says, give me this water so I won't be thirsty again. And what does Jesus say? He says to her, go call your husband and come here. This is quite controversial. I mean, this is, almost, this is offensive that he's connecting this. She's thirsty. She's hungry. She's looking for some fulfillment in life. She wants this thing that Jesus is offering. And what does he say? Go call your husband. How dare he? Because, here's the story. He says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him this, I have no husband. Well, technically that's true, but Jesus knows all things, right? Full of grace and truth. And what does he say? Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. And here's what he does. He just clobbers her right between the eyes with her own thirsty condition. He says this, For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. What is he doing here? He's pointing out this woman's thirst, this soul thirst, this craving, this longing for fulfillment, for satisfaction. She's trying to satisfy this inner craving, this hunger, this thirst with relationships with men. And Jesus, the living water, says, come and drink. She says, I want this. And he says, okay, now I'm going to point out to you where you're looking to satisfy yourself is wrong. It's insufficient. It can't do it. It was never enough. She had already cycled through five husbands, the man she was currently with, who was not her husband, and Jesus speaks directly into her soul thirst, and that's what God does for us. You say, well, that seems direct. That seems offensive. That seems kind of invasive. How dare? That's how good God is. He's not gonna, he doesn't want you to try to be satisfied with the mud puddles that we try to, try to drink from. So what is your soul thirsty for? What is it thirsty for? Where are you looking or in what do you look or where do you look to satisfy your soul, your soul thirst? Think about the last week. We're all thirsty. We're all looking somewhere. Work, that's really popular. Success, Career, family, friends, spouse, children, sex, money, social media, entertainment, the list could go on and on. John 7 tells us it must be Jesus. He's the only one who can satisfy your soul thirst. So, all right, we are thirsty. Jesus is the only one that can quench our thirst. 
how do you quench your thirst in Jesus? How? Does it seem abstract, elusive? Well, how do we do that? Well, that's where we're going to finish up here. And it's found in verse 38, the first part of verse 30 of John chapter 7. So you can flip your way back there, but in John 7 verse 38... Right, in verse 37, he says, Anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. Verse 38, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So they can think of it this way. Jesus quenches our thirst through us believing in him. Believing in Jesus equals coming to him and drinking. That's what the scriptures teach. Now, how do we know this? Well, verse 35 of John 6, he says the same thing. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What Jesus is not doing there, he's not giving a two-step process. Come to me, right? And now also believe in me. Those are analogous. Those are the same. He's teaching, listen, you want your soul thirst quenched. You want your soul hunger satisfied. Come to me. What do you mean, Jesus? Believe in me. He does that in John 6, and then again in John 7. He does that. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you. What does he say? Believe, verse 38, in me. Those are analogous. Those are the same thing. Jesus is inviting people to have their soul thirst quenched by believing in him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it has to mean more than just mental understanding and agreement. Just dry facts. Because that's not how thirst works. It's not that you understand that water will quench your thirst. I got it. I understand it. Okay. What do you have to do? You have to take a drink. And, right? And you've been thirsty and you take a big drink of water out of your Nalgene bottle and ah, it quenches your thirst. That's what God is representing himself to us in Christ. Come drink and be quenched. How? Believe. So it means then that it has to be more than just mental agreement. It means your soul is thirsty and you will be satisfied, which means this. You enjoy and you rest and you delight in him. You enjoy and rest and delight in what you believe about Jesus, who he is, and what he said he has done as our Savior. So if you're a Christian, it means this. You can enjoy Jesus because in him, your guilt and shame are forgiven. Your treason against God is forgiven. Satisfied. If you're a Christian, you can rest in him because his righteousness is given to you. You're not earning it. His perfect record is given to you, and so you rest. You're satisfied. You believe he is enough. I'm not, but he is, and he's bringing me to God. If you're a Christian, you delight in Jesus. Why? It satisfies the hunger in your soul because he loves you. He saved you. He found you who were lost, and he's claimed you eternally for his own. Now, all of this what Jesus is talking about in John 6, John 7 here, harkens back to something, is, is a fulfillment of something that God showed Israel and us in the, in the scriptures in Exodus 17. And this is where we'll finish up, okay? In Exodus 17, because this is just glorious, okay? I think this will help our hearts just be full of greater appreciation for who we are as God's people today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and the promise and the invitation of, of Jesus to come and be satisfied in him. And that's going to mark us as a people. That's going to give us a winsomeness and a, to, to penetrate the, 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 the depressed, lonely, um, 
unsatisfied world around us, right? We're going to be people that are markedly different because our souls are quenched in a way that defies everything the world is offering us. Right? You get that? So in Exodus 17, I know it's Old Testament, right? A lot of strange stuff back there, right? Rules, laws, regulations, ceremonies, festivals, sacrifices, I mean, killing and blood and spatters and all, right? But in Exodus 17, Israel is wandering in the wilderness and um, they are angry. Israel is angry. Because in Exodus 17, uh, they're thirsty. They've been traveling around, and they're in a place called Rephidim, and there's no water, and they're thirsty. Uh, you've been hangry before, right? There's a sharper edge when you're thirsty, right? And they're angry, ultimately, at God, because God has not provided for them. So they think, and they doubt that he's able to provide. They're in the desert. There's no water. They're angry, and so what they're going to do is they're going to take their anger out on Moses, which... Uh, right? Sadly, that's what we often do, right? We're angry at God and we start hurling our anger at other people and uh, they're getting ready to stone Moses. I mean, Moses cries out to God and says, God, you've got you to gotta intervene here because the people are getting ready to kill me. They're getting ready to stone me, it says in Exodus 17. So Moses cries out to God and God tells Moses to do something. Now, some of us have heard this story and we're like, yeah, okay, it's kind of a, one of those Old Testament you know, wilderness miracles. Cool, but how does it have to do with us in modern-day America? Hang in there, right? God says, Moses, I'm going to pass before you. My presence is going to come near. Now, remember in Exodus 20, when God's presence came near, they set up fences and the mountain was shaking and there was thunder and lightning and clouds. And God says, don't even go near the mountain, otherwise you're going to die. So this is awesome, what's going to happen here. God says, my presence is going to, I'm going to pass before the people. And he tells Moses to take some of the elders of Israel as witnesses and take your staff, your rod, Moses, the one that Moses had thrown down and turned into serpent and all that. Take your rod and when I come, when my presence, when I stand before you there on this rock at Horeb, this big rock that was there, when I stand there, my presence is there. I want you to take your staff, your rod, and I want you to strike the rock. And when you do that, water's going to flow out of this rock and the people will be saved. Their thirst will be satisfied. So what would you do? Or would you kind of take this as like, okay, yeah, Moses went out there, hit the rock, and water came out. Cool. What would you do? You're Moses. I mean, remember Moses was by the burning bush and God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground because my presence is there. Now God is saying, Moses, take your rod and strike the rock. Seems audacious. How dare he? Well, Moses does exactly what he's told. He stands there. The presence of God comes near. Moses takes his rod and strikes the rock and water gushes out. You say, okay, why strike the rock? What's happening in Exodus 17? Water flowing out. How does this have anything to do with John 7 and Jesus', Jesus invitation to come and, be, and drink and be satisfied in us? Here's how. And this is, this is the heart of what makes us Christians. This is the heart of the gospel. So please, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. In the scriptures, the rod or the staff is, is a symbol. It's a reference to punishment, to judgment. And what we have happening here in Exodus 17 is a foreshadowing of the Christian gospel of what Christ has done for us. That God would be struck by the rod. He would take the blow and punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against him and in so doing, we would be saved. And in Exodus 17, Moses strikes the rock and water gushes out and the people were saved. Exactly like God said, but 
thousands of years in the future, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to be struck on the cross. His blood will be spilled and will flow as a payment for our rebellion, for your treason against God, for your defiance of his rule and reign in your life. And what's the result? You are saved. Your soul is quenched. Your hunger is satisfied because now the veil that's in the temple that was separating you from God is torn. And now the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly, like a child just walks right into the king's presence. Why? Because his king is his dad. That's what we have. In fact, you say, well, come on, that sounds too spiritualizing. I'm not, because in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul makes this exact parallel. He draws us from Exodus 17 to Jesus being this rock when he says this about Israel. They were all drinking the same spiritual drink. How? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. What do you mean? And the rock was Christ. So when Jesus stands up on this last day of this Feast of Booths and says to them, come and drink, he knows that to do that means he will be the rock that is struck on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we could drink. How? Our souls satisfied by being brought to God, our maker, the one we've been made to enjoy and to know forever. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate in this table, in this observance of the Lord's Supper. This is who we are, God's people. Jesus is crying out to you, come and drink. Your souls are thirsty. They can be satisfied in me. So, wrapping it all up, here's how it works. This is why Jesus can give another invitation like this in Matthew 11. When he says this, come to me. Here, another invitation, right? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you might say, man, have you read your Bible? Because it does not seem restful. Do this, do this, do this, be holy. Don't do that, don't do that. Do this, give all this. Be like this, be like this, don't be like that. It's like, come on. Have you read your Bible? But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Wow, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's the same, it's analogous to Jesus saying, come and drink. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can come to Jesus because of this. He did all the work for us. The rest that Jesus offers is a rest from trying to save yourself. Christians, we are not people who save ourselves. We rest in the one who has saved us. We drink from him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he is the one, he is the fountain of everlasting life to everyone who would drink because he's the one that has done the work. He's fulfilled the law, the requirements of God. He is our holiness. He is our righteousness. And so we rest and we find his yoke and his burden light. Do you know that? Do you know Jesus this way? Have you come to Christ in, what's the right word, drink, drunk from him? Have you found your soul satisfied in him? That's who we are as Christians. That's what we celebrate together this morning. Jesus, our rock, took the stroke of our punishment that we might be saved. This is who we are as a church family. This is what we celebrate this morning. So I hope as we observe this table here, as Jared leads us through the Lord's Supper, that our hearts will let the echo, let, let the invitation of Jesus echo in our hearts. He says, come. 
Are you thirsty? Maybe this, maybe this week you have been trying to slake your thirst in all sorts of different things, different ways, different people, different ideas than Jesus, than God, than all that he's promised he is for you in Christ. Friend, Jesus' invitation remains. Come and drink and be satisfied.